so this morning, all right, I guess I should give it, so these that are, are uh, haven't been with us over the last seven weeks, we covered the book of Jonah, that small little book in seven weeks. So David and I said, well, we should continue with the prophets. That's our plan through the end of the year. Um, and uh, we thought, let's do Jeremiah. And I guess Jeremiah is like 50 chapters. So we figure we'll be done by 2030. We actually decided was we took a really small book like Jonah, four chapters, and did it in seven weeks. We're going to take the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to condense it down into two. Really, that's, that's the plan. Because we want to help you understand the message of the prophets and the goals of the prophets and what they were doing and what they're accomplishing and how they fit into the big picture story. We're going to do that through Jeremiah. And then, Lord willing, we're going to then look at the book of Isaiah in more detail leading up to the coming of the Messiah um, for Christmas time through the, through the lens of Isaiah. So it should be a really great time looking at the prophets and how it connects to the New Testament. So about two years ago, we began this journey of looking at the, the whole Bible as a unified story. So from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is one story with many books and many authors. Well, one author really, but many people who penned them down. Like even Jeremiah was not really written down by Jeremiah. He had a scribe. Um, but it's one entire story. And often we focus on, on one verse or one set of verses and we don't look at the big picture, which any of you ever use Google Earth? Yeah, so, so looking at just like one verse or one section at a time is kind of like looking at your spot on Google Earth and not realizing where you fit in with the whole rest of the globe. And so we want to get the picture of the whole globe over the next couple weeks, um, just a reminder of what we've been studying over the last two, uh, two years. And then we're going to focus in on some specific passages. Um, now, many people try to condense down the, the big picture message in an easy to remember format. For instance, one of the more popular ones is um, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration or recreation. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so a lot of people will take and try to, to do a timeline or just a short little um, memorable way to keep track of the big picture. And, and they can be really, really helpful. Um, look, the only challenge that I have with that is where do the prophets fit into that? Right? I mean, you have creation, Genesis chapters one and two, fall, Genesis chapter three, redemption, gospels, and everything in between. Where does that fit? We probably have to adjust that timeline a little bit um, to maybe add something else in there. Uh, but let's be real. Anytime you summarize a couple thousand pages of text into four words, you're going to miss some stuff. Okay. It's expected. And that's okay. You're not trying to digest the whole Bible in six words. You couldn't do that. But it's okay to have four or six words or 10 words that help you remember the main themes. Um, the majority of the Old Testament fits in between Genesis 3 and the Gospels. And that's where the prophets are. And if you, if you think of chapter three as the fall of Genesis, chapter four goes into Cain and Abel, right? And then you get in eventually into the Tower of Babel. And then you have the flood and you have the reset with a global reset with the flood and even Noah fails. And so you have this continual, perpetual downhill spiral of mankind from the fall. And really that section from the fall until redemption is kind of like a proof text of why we need redemption and what God planned to do about it and how good things can become bad things if, they, if they're not used God's way. Uh, it teaches the depravity of a people group who fail to follow God's way. Um, and it teaches the compassion of a creator God who cares about his creation which includes you and me. It's a pretty amazing section of scripture that we often miss. And this, the prophets especially are a window into the continued effects of the fall. And I think the reason we don't like to read the prophets is because they're pretty depressing. How many of you like just think like, oh, for my quiet time, I want to go through the prophets. Anybody? You would, Cara, you totally would. Um, and you are actually, aren't you? You're doing Hosea, right? And, and Joel. So pray for Kara that she's still happy when Christmas rolls around. 
Um, they're depressing though sometimes, like the same message over and over again, and it's, it's not always a positive message. And so this morning, I really get the privilege of bringing the doom and gloom side of Jeremiah to you guys so that David can give you all the good news next week. You see how this plays out. This happens all the time. So I'll give you all the bad stuff, and then he can give you the good stuff next week. Um, but I wanted to start with a timeline of Jonah. Um, so I have a timeline here. Not a timeline of Jonah, sorry. Timeline of Jeremiah. See, I'm so used to, they're both J's, you know. So I have a timeline that you can memorize here. It won't take you long, I'm sure. Um, you got that? So, so some things we wanted to point out here um, on this timeline. Is, uh, is where we've been as a group, and then also where we're going. Uh, so to start out with, um, Jeremiah, well, let's start back further. Um, we just finished reading about Jonah, right? And if you look at Jonah, you're going to see that Jonah is up. Can I use the pointer on this thing? Does it work? Jonah is up at 785 to 773. He's this little green dot up there. Now, if you're online, this chart will be online. You'll be able to see it, Lord willing, when you get to see it um, later on. So Jonah is a pre-exile prophet. Um, and he was from about 780 to 760-ish um, BC. And he preached before any of Israel or Judah was captured and taken away out of the land. Uh, around 740 where the little footsteps are, um, around 740 BC, the Northern Kingdom was taken into exile. So not long after, maybe 20 years, 30 years after Jonah's message, um, Shalmaneser, we talked about him, Shalmaneser comes in, he conquers Samaria, the capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and he deports them. And this is the first of the exiles that take place. Actually, it happens in, in the series. And the Northern Kingdom was made up of how many tribes? Anybody know? 10. So the first 10 tribes out of 12 are taken away in, by Assyria. And we um, can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 18. I'll read this for you. During the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign, which was the seventh year of King Hosea's reign in Israel, King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked the city of Samaria and began to siege against it. Three years later, during the sixth year of King Hezekiah's reign and the ninth year of King Hosea's reign in Israel, Samaria fell. And at that time, the king of Assyria exiled the Israelites to Assyria and placed them in colonies in Halah along the banks of the Haber River in Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. For they refused to listen to the Lord their God and obey him. Instead, they violated his covenant all the laws that Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded them to obey. And that last verse there is 2 Kings 18, 12. And it's one of those great verses that kind of gives you part of the big picture of the Old Testament and of the prophets. They refused to listen to the Lord and to obey. And they violated the covenant that God had made with Moses. And we talked about some, some covenants, right? We had the Abrahamic covenant, we had the Noahic covenant, and then there's the covenant with Moses, which took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. So God punished Israel, the Northern kingdoms, by having them being taken captive by Assyria around 740 BC, because they disobeyed him. So you come to Jeremiah, and you see Jeremiah, they're showing it around 627 to 575. He's in the middle of the screen there. Um, and uh, Jeremiah was an exile prophet. He began his ministry around 630 BC after the Assyrian exile. So 10 tribes are already in exile. Two tribes are not. And this is when he picks up as a prophet. He actually had a ministry of about 50 years, which is a long time. You know, Jonah was like a flash in the pan. He, he preached, or he, had a, he had a message at one point, and he didn't hear from him, and then he had this message to Nineveh, and that's like the end of it. 50 years-ish, uh, he was a prophet. Um, however, um, he was there not only during, after the 
first exile, he was there for the other exiles, um, actually all three of the other exiles that took place in Judah. They weren't taken away from by the Assyrians, Judah's taken away by Babylon. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, now, a couple things I want to point out because we've been going through prophets. We've been going through Old Testament books. Around 604, if you follow your timeline, you're going to see Daniel. 605 to 536, you see Daniel. We covered the book of Daniel. He's one of the first people taken in the Babylonian exile. So the northern kingdom, they've been, they've been exiled for a long time. The southern kingdom gets exiled around 605. And around 604, Daniel and his compatriots are taken to Babylon to serve because they were smart and good-looking. Qualifications, I guess. Smart and good-looking. So they got taken first with the first exile around 604. So Daniel, was we've, that we've already covered, was after the whole nation had been exiled, and he was one of the first groups to go into Babylon. Just thought I'd give you some perspective there. Um, in 586, so 605 was the first exile. In 586, we have the last exile of Judah, and this one is devastating. And I want to bring out a couple facts because they're going to come in later when we look at more of the history of Israel. Uh, we read in, in 2 Kings 25 of the Babylonian exile. Um, and this one's horrible because not only are the rest of the people taken captive, but the city is burned. The walls are torn down. The temple that Solomon built, destroyed, unrecognizable. Everything that Israel stood for was just wiped out and made into a pile of rubble. Devastating, devastating. Second Kings 25, verses 8 through 12. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses in Jerusalem. And he burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captains of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population, but the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. So by the end of 586, the nation Israel that God had brought into the promised land, established through the kingdom of David, further established through the peaceful kingdom of Solomon, was then divided into two sections and fought against each other and fought against their neighbors and abandoned God and God carried the northern kingdom and 10 of them away and then carried the two southern kingdoms away and destroyed everything. Even the temple where he said his name would dwell. He even allowed that to be destroyed. So we start out the book of Jeremiah now that you have this perspective of where Jeremiah comes in, Jeremiah actually prophesies even into the Babylonian exile for a while. But he starts after the Assyrian exile and through the Babylonian exile and then even in the Babylonian exile for a bit. Um, so in his lifetime, he has seen his countrymen carried off. He's going to see countrymen carried off and killed. He's going to see his city destroyed and the temple destroyed. And he's going to predict all of it and not be very popular. I mean, really? Who wants to give that message? So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. Now that we've uh, kind of given you the, the historical perspective, let me give you just a little bit more here. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you're a history person, you probably like really dig this. And some of you are like, got the, the glossy eyes that, you know, deer in the headlights look. Trust me, it's important stuff, though. It's really cool when you see the way it all works together. Jeremiah chapter one, verses one through three. These are the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests from the town of Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. The Lord first gave messages to Jeremiah during the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. 
The Lord's messages continued throughout the reign of King Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, until the 11th year of the reign of King Zedekiah, another of Josiah's sons. In August of that 11th year, the people of Jerusalem were taken away as captives. So Jeremiah starts with this historical perspective, which is part of the reason I'm bringing it into light where we are now. It starts by saying he began at this time. And that time, if you haven't put a timeline together, you're like, okay, that's cool. Whoever those people are, he served during them. And, but it shows you it's after the Assyrian conquest and it earmarks a very special event. In August of the 11th year, the people of Jerusalem were taken away as captives. So he was from Benjamin, which was one of the Southern tribes. And they're taken away as, as captives um, during Jeremiah's reign uh, as prophet. So the intro of the book gives a historic setting. And there's a few things that I think we can note from this. Uh, first of all, the Northern Kingdom had already been taken away. So as you read the book of Jeremiah, and I'm going to encourage you to do that this week, it's a long book. And you'll, you'll feel like you're reading the same thing over and over again at times, but keep reading it. As you read the book of Jeremiah this week, realize that Israel, the northern king, 10 tribes, are already in exile. The two smaller tribes in the south are the only ones left. And Jeremiah is giving them a message. Repent or God's going to punish you. I don't know about you. I can be a little slow sometimes, right? Don't touch that. It's hot. I was that kid. Guess what I had to do? How many of you can relate? Oh, yeah, right? Oh, yeah. Ten of the 12 tribes are gone. You saw what Assyrians did to them. I'm coming to you as a prophet, Judah, and I'm warning you, God is going to take out you next if you don't change. You would think they would listen right? Mm, apparently not. Apparently not. Um, just, just as Jonah was a type of the stubbornness of Israel, when we looked at that, you're going to see that, that Judah is going to play out that exact lifestyle of just, just ignoring God and being rebellious and not wanting to do what God wants them to do. Um, so this introduction leads us to the message of Jeremiah to the people of Judah, and it even tells you, guess what? They're going to go into exile because that's when his ministry ended, when Judah goes into exile. You would think with 10 tribes already in exile, they'd get the point, but they don't. Um, so let's look at the call of Jeremiah. This is pretty cool. Um, the idea of being called by God is something I remember hearing a lot about in college. So I went to a Bible college and they said, oh, what's God calling you to do? God called Laura to be a pastor's wife, right? Because that's what she wanted to do. What's God calling you to do? And people would say, God's calling me to be a missionary. Cool. Just so that you know, God calls all of us to be missionaries. Just going to throw that out there. God's calling me to be a pastor, a youth pastor. God's calling me to be a music pastor, pastor of technology. We haven't figured out how quite to redeem technology yet, but that's okay. We'll figure that out. People would have all these things that they're called to do and called to be. And we kind of make it this big, mysterious thing. I think we all wish we had something like Jeremiah in that God would just say, Mike, I want you to do this. And it'd be really cool. But God doesn't always do that, does he? I mean, if only God could send me a text message, then I would know. What is God's calling? Well, like most of the prophets, Jeremiah had a very specific call. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, you see the calling of Samuel as a prophet. God literally called to him in the middle of the night, right? So we kind of wish we had that. But Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we read about the calling of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord Yahweh came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. And I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God's appointment of Jeremiah, God's selection of Jeremiah was before he was even born. Jeremiah was handpicked and handmade by God for a specific work. 
Can I just give you a little clue that so are each of you? But that's a whole separate sermon. Hang on to that thought. Every one of us was handmade by God for a purpose, to do his work. But we see this particular calling and this idea of specific time and place that God puts us in um, throughout the exile writings. In fact, if you've read the book of Esther, Esther becomes queen when Israel is going to be wiped out. And Malachi says, who knows, maybe you were meant to be at such a time as this. Maybe this is God's plan and he's lined it up for you to do this at this time and to be in this place. This idea of, of divine appointment and divine election and, and divine choosing and God having a plan behind everything is super important, especially when you're thinking about the exile. It's on purpose, with a purpose. But we also see this kind of appointment in the New Testament. So Luke chapter one, you're introduced to this character, John the Baptist right? John the Baptist, his birth was foretold to his dad, Zechariah, who was ministering. And he was told that his son would be filled with this Holy Spirit while even in the womb, that God had chosen him before he was born and he'd be filled with the Spirit in the womb to preach a message of repentance and turning back to God. John the Baptist was our first New Testament prophet with a calling of God and the spirit of God on him to preach the word of God of repentance, to turn back to the God of creation, to turn back to Yahweh. God's calling. I want you to understand something that's really, I think, significant from this, that God's calling is obviously not based on anybody's accomplishments, right? God chooses whom he pleases. And his calling is not based upon anything that we do. I mean, you really couldn't say that Jeremiah had accomplished much before he was born, nor John. I mean, you don't just come out of the womb with a bunch of trophies and, you know, personal bests, right? There's no way to impress God, even in your first couple of years. Anybody remember your first couple of years? You ate, you slapped, you slept, you, you pooped, you cried. You ate some more, you, you repeated the cycle, you fell down a lot. It's not impressive. It's a beautiful, awesome thing, but it's not like it's going to make people look at you and go, oh yeah, that's the person I want on my team. There's nothing we do at this age, at a very young age, let alone before we were born, that's going to impress God. He selected Jeremiah before he was born. He selected John the Baptist before he was born. It's obvious they had no time to prove to God their worth or establish a name from themselves. God chooses whom he wants to choose because it's about his name and not ours. It's about his accomplishment and not ours. It's about his purpose and not ours. We always have to remember that because once we're old enough to start accomplishing things on our own, it's easy for us to start thinking that we're doing it and to do things on our own and to become very much like the nation Israel. So that's where Jeremiah's calling was like many of the prophets of old. However, um, it was also not like many of the prophets. Where Jeremiah's appointment is different is that he was a prophet to all the nations. Did you catch that at the end? You're going to go to all. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jonah went to Nineveh. Yeah. And you'll find that there's an occasional prophet that's going to prophesy against this country or this land. But Jonah, um, Jeremiah, excuse me, I keep wanting to go back to Jonah. Jeremiah was a prophet to all the nations, to Judah, as well as to the enemies of Judah, the Babylonians, and all the nations around him. Um, and like many of the prophets, Jeremiah was really not sure God had picked the right person. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you regularly, we pastors, have a talk with God, and we say, God, I'm really not sure you picked the right person. And then he reminds me, it's not because of what you do, Mike. It's because of what I can do. It's not because of, of what you've accomplished, but because of what I can accomplish if you'll allow me to. Jeremiah 
he wasn't sure that God picked the right guy. And in verse six, Jeremiah chapter one, verse six, Jeremiah says, but I protested. I said, oh, 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 no. Oh, no. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. Okay, quick poll. What New Testament book does Paul say? Don't look down on your youth. Timothy, that's right. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I can think of another man of God that said he couldn't speak also. Moses. Moses, by the way, was the king of excuses. He had more excuses for what for, for why he shouldn't do what God wanted than anybody else in, in the Old Testament that I can find. Um, Jeremiah has one. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know how to speak eloquently. You're going to send me to all the nations of the world. And I'm supposed to speak a message. And I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I'm a high schooler. Actually, they believed he was about 20 years old at the time. Um, so he's still pretty young. Remember, he's going to prophesy for, have a ministry for about 50 years. So he's going to be 70 something by the time he eventually um, leaves this earth. But he wasn't sure that God called the right person. He felt uncertain. And I'm going to say it's not uncommon for people that God calls to feel uncertain or even unqualified about their calling. As a matter of fact, um, I think it can be a very healthy thing. I think we need to be careful that we don't feel that God picked us because of us. God picked me. I mean, why wouldn't he pick me? You know, I'm, I'm on the A team. You know, why, why wouldn't he pick me? I think we have to be careful about the arrogance that can come from having abilities. If you have been given gifts and abilities, praise God for that. But realize they're from him. They're for him. And God can use, you want to be honest, God used a donkey. Made it talk to teach Israel a lesson. God can use a donkey. He can use all of us. It's not our accomplishments. It's what God can do. And we should all feel uncertain and unqualified at times. After all, we've been called to do the work of the God who created everything around us. What is not intimidating about that? But what's also not awesome about that? I mean, that's amazing. He, he wants us to, to work with him. So Jeremiah chapter one, verses seven and eight, the Lord listens to Jeremiah's concern about being young and says, the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a youth. For you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. So there's this trifecta of certainty that God brings up here. You will go to everyone. You will speak what I tell you. And I will rescue you. Now, two of those bring me a lot of comfort. This calling is similar to that of Jonah's. Go to the nation, speak the message. Jonah ran from God. Jonah didn't do it on purpose. Jeremiah questions, but obeys, which is what you were expecting for Jonah. Remember, Jonah was satire. Jonah should have done this and been excited to do this and didn't. Jeremiah does. Um, but I want you to understand something else about God as we look at this. God often invites questions and reassures us through them. Did you realize that? I'm just thinking, how many of you parents mind when your kids ask you a question? Some of you are thinking through scenarios right now. I can see it. I mean, if they ask me the question like, Dad, could I clean the whole house for you today? You wouldn't mind that at all, right? Dad, could I make you dinner? Wouldn't mind that either. But then when you ask them to do something, Hey, hey, kids, can you, like, pick up your room? Why? That never happens in your house, I know. But let's say it did. Would that be a, an excuse to just get mad and rant on them or to teach them why? Give me the answer that you want everybody to hear in the room. Okay, not the answer that would actually happen. What do you think would the answer that everybody that, that should happen? Teachable moment, right? Well, everybody in a house has responsibilities, and everybody has things that they do to help do the work that it takes to, to run a household. Yours is to take care of this stuff here. Why? We won't keep going down that road, but you get the idea. Questions are meant to instruct. 
And, and God, I don't find him as that angry parent that just starts lashing out at people when they ask why, or when they say, I'm not sure. And there's so many times over and over again in the Old Testament, God says to do something and people are like, but God, and God just says, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. We just, it's Moses, the burning bush, um, Joshua, when Joshua goes to take over control from Moses and, and lead the nation. How many times do you read, be strong and courageous? You can do this. You got this, Joshua, but, but, but I'm following Moses, God. You, you sure? Um, Elijah, how many people can you think of in the Old Testament that questioned God and God did not get mad at them unless they really pushed it? He did actually get angry at Moses at the very end. That's a fun one to read. But God uses it as a time to instruct um, I think that we have to understand that there are times that God tells every one of us things he wants us to do, and we might question God. We might question God regarding what he wants us to do or the circumstances he's allowed us to be in, but it's, I've not found our father to be a father who, re, who rejects questions. I find that he's a God who wants us to ask questions, to teach us, to trust him, to teach us to have faith in him. And even with Jeremiah, he does the same thing. He reassures him. He says, you will go to the nations. There's no question in God's mind he's going to go. You will speak my words. No question about that. And I will protect you. And then there's that phrase. What do you mean protect me, God? I mean, of all the reassuring, non-reassuring things you could say at that point. Yeah. You're going to go. And guess what? I'm going to keep you alive. That's what he's saying, literally. Is he, is, is he referring to protection from the Assyrians that conquered Israel? Is he saying he's going to protect him from Babylon, who's going to come in and take over Judah? Is he saying he's going to protect him from his own fellow countrymen who are not going to like the message that they're going to hear and are going to want to kill him? Well, well yeah, he's saying yes to all of those things because he's going to be threatened in all three ways. And God's going to protect him through all of those things. All right, as you read the book of Jeremiah, you're going to find several instances where he talks about threats on his life. And where God protects him from threats on his life, usually by his own countrymen. So this call of Jeremiah, it's similar to the other prophets in that God gave him a word and a message and something to do. And it's similar to the call God gives each one of us to take his message to the people around us. But it's different in that he was a prophet to all of the nations, not just Judah, but to all the nations around him. And Jeremiah questioned it, but God reassured him. So what is this message he's supposed to give? I want to go over the message real quickly here. The message, he had a few different messages because he had a few different audiences. Um, Jeremiah can be a challenge to read. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, Jeremiah can be a challenge to read because it seems like the same message over and over again. It doesn't follow this chronological thought all the time. It's not like the narrative of Jonah where you have the story unfolding. You're going to have a change of kings and you're going to have a change of circumstances and a message is going to come out. It's going to be the same message kind of presented in a different way. Same, the similar message with different um, proof text or different uh, set of instructions on what they've done wrong and what they need to do. Same message, but it's going to be packaged differently. And that can be really challenging to read, especially when you keep getting it over and over again. But one of the messages that Jonah had was to the residents of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, the Southern kingdom. And you read about it in chapter two is where you start reading about it. You read out all throughout the book, especially in the first half of the book. But I want you to turn forward to Jeremiah chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 11. If you read Jeremiah chapter two, you'll hear that Israel was unfaithful, like she had broken her covenant, her marriage covenant with God. If you read other chapters, you'll hear that she was unfaithful in this way or did these things. When you get to chapter 11, it's going to be the same message, but in a different package. And I want to read chapter 11 with you, the first 11 verses. This is the message that's repeated again in multiple different ways to Judah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the words of this covenant and tell them to the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. Tell them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let a curse be on the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, 
which I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. I declared, obey me and do everything that I command you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. In order to establish the oath, I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is today. And I answered, amen, Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Obey the words of this covenant and carry them out. For I strongly warned your ancestors when they brought them out of the land of Egypt until today, warning them time and time again, obey me. Yet they would not obey, they would not obey or pay attention. Each one followed the stubbornness of his evil heart. So I brought them, I brought on them all the curses of this covenant because they had not done what I commanded them to do. The Lord said to me, conspiracy has been discovered among the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. They have returned to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to obey my words and have followed other gods to worship them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah broke my covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to bring on them disaster that they cannot escape. They will cry out to me, but I will not hear them. I think verse eight is one of the keys in that passage. They, they would not obey or pay attention. Each one followed the stubbornness of his evil heart. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But the message is that just going back to the Exodus, I brought you out as a people. I protected you. I carried you. I fed you. I taught you that I'm the healer. I taught you that I'm the one who guides you and you've turned your back. I gave you laws. Don't have any other gods but me. And now you have gods, but you have gods before me. You have every God but me is how it could have been phrased at this time. The, the message of, to Judah is very much like the message that we read in Malachi. Remember going through the book of Malachi, he's all the way at the very end there, the last of the prophets that we hear about until John the Baptist shows up on the scene. Malachi's message was, you, you played the spiritual harlot by worshiping idols. You betrayed your first love. You have not lived up to the covenant you made at, at Sinai, and you've forgotten Yahweh. Same message over and over and over again. You, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. And since we've covered a lot of that in Malachi, I don't want to leave, I want to leave most of that for now. But what seems odd to me in Jeremiah in this message. So as you read each of the prophets, they're going to queue up on different things. And what seems odd to me in Jeremiah are phrases like the one at the end of our passage, chapter 11, where he's uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, where he says, they will cry out to me, but I will not hear them. Remember Jonah's prayer? Jonah had turned away from God. I cried out to God and he heard me. David cries out in his sin. I cried out to God and he heard me. But this message of Jeremiah is different. They will cry out, but I will not hear them. As a matter of fact, God even tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people of Judah. Don't pray for them because it's not going to do any good, he says. Like, what? Thou shalt not pray for thy people? Sounds like a backwards commandment. The message of Jeremiah um, is unique in that it's showing that God's mercy and compassion has been pushed to the edge and that God knows that the heart of Israel is not repentant and not going to repent. And so he will bring about this justice, this judgment. So that's the message to Judah, to, Jer to Jerusalem, to the southern two tribes that are still not in exile. And then there's the message to the nations. And this is another interesting message that we're just going to highlight a, a certain phrase here because you're going to see it again in Isaiah. It's going to come up in the New Testament in the book of Revelations again. Um, I, Jeremiah chapter 25. So skip to chapter 25. And we're now in the section of God's punishment on the nations, God's judgment on the nations. Because Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah and also a prophet to the nations. So the message to Judah is, You've left the covenant. You haven't obeyed. I'm going to punish you. The message to the nations, Jeremiah 25 is a great summary of it. I'm going to hit a couple of verses with us. Starting in verse 15, Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand 
and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. They will drink, stagger, go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink from it. You skip to verse 27. You are to say to them, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk and vomit, fall down and never get up again. As a result of the sword, I am sending among you. There's this, this introduction of something in Jeremiah called the, the cup of God's wrath that's poured out on the nations. It's kind of brutal. So this is to everybody other than Israel at this point. And, and it may seem, it's, it's basically the destruction and punishment on all the nations. And it may seem really harsh if you don't understand the bigger picture story of the Bible. If you don't understand that the fall of man and the Tower of Babel and people choosing to be God and rebelling against God, their creator. If you don't understand that that's been the story from the very beginning and that God as a just God has to punish. Um, I think if you continue um, just a couple more verses, verses 27 and uh, sorry, 28 and 29, I think you get one of the key verses that talks about the punishment of the nations. If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand and, and drink, you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. You must drink, for I am already bringing disaster on the city that bears my name. So how could you possibly go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. In other words, if I'm going to punish my own people, don't think you're going to get off. Like, wow, that's harsh. You're like, we don't talk about a God of wrath. We don't talk about a God of judgment very often because it's uncomfortable. And yet the message of Jeremiah over and over again is that rebellion from God deserves punishment from God. That continued rebellion against God can bring the wrath of God. And he has that right. Matter of fact, it's part of his nature and it's his character as a just God to enact justice. We saw this in the flood. We, we'll see it in the exile. We're going to see it in the cup of wrath poured out on the nations down the road. So it really makes us think, why? What keeps mankind from following God? If this has been the story from the beginning, going right back to the garden, and then we had the flood, and we didn't learn then. And then we had, we had the exile, and we didn't learn then. What keeps mankind from following God? I mean, who wouldn't want to serve a God who blesses and chooses and provides and protects? I mean, isn't that the kind of God you'd want to follow? And yet, even today, people find ways to blame God for the injustices of this world. Still today, people choose to believe that the things that are created are of more value than the one who created them. According to Jeremiah, if you were to look at this prophet and say, what does he think is the reason? I believe Jeremiah would tell you that it's a heart issue. That it's an issue of the heart. Now, the Jewish heart, the Hebrew heart, is a bit different than our word heart. Okay? Okay. Matter of fact, it used to creep me out when people told me as a kid that you need to have Jesus into your heart because I'm picturing Jesus in this. And it really kind of grossed me out because I knew what a heart looked like and what it did. And I'm like, Jesus is in there because um, I just couldn't separate it from the organ. Um, but, but in Hebrew concept, the heart is the place of emotion. Yes. It's also the place of decision and action. It's the place of thinking. It's basically their representation of the brain. They didn't have a word for, for brain and the heart was part of that. So the heart issue is an issue of the whole being of a person in their thinking, in their emotions and in their actions. So when you go to the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six, hear O Israel, the Lord, your God is one and you will love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, your thinking, your emotions, and your actions. All of those are together in that word heart. According to Jeremiah, the problem with Judah is a heart issue. 
Matter of fact, at least 18 times, Jeremiah says, your hard hearts, your stubborn hearts, it's because of the condition of your heart that God is doing these things, at least 18 times directly. If you I want to take in inferences from other ones, you can come up with more than that. Um, I want to give you two. One we read was Jeremiah eleven eight. Yet they would not pay attention or obey. Each one of them followed the stubbornness of his evil heart. But also Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10. This is actually a verse that we hear quoted quite often. And I find this with Jeremiah. I find very few, very few people have actually read and studied the book of Jeremiah, but they have these little quotes that are like good magnet quotes. You know what I'm talking about? You put them on magnets and you stick them on your fridge. Um, they're good like magnet quotes. And this is one of them, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 that I've, that I've seen. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. So Jeremiah is saying the reason that people rebel against God, the reason that Judah is going to end up in exile at the hand of the Babylonians is because of a heart condition. And we shouldn't be surprised because we were reminded of this in Genesis chapter 6. Right after the flood, God put his sign in the sky, the rainbow, and he said, listen, I, I promise I won't do this again. Because in Genesis 6, 5, God said this, human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. It's also human heart, same word. Only evil all the time. So if a global reset wasn't able to fix things and the selection of the special people and with a special relationship with the God and a temple where God's glory dwells, not able to fix things, is there any hope? Is, is the purpose of Jeremiah just to show the depravity of mankind? Let me turn you to take you to one more passage in Jeremiah, chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. Starting in verse 11. Another magnet saying, Totally taken out of context, but still cool. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 11. Some of you can even quote this. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Let me pause. We're going to keep reading. Who is he saying this to? Who is this message for? This message is for a group of people who are about to be carried off and their families, some of their families slaughtered, their property taken away, their city burned because of the hardness of their hearts. And God says, I know the plans I have for you. It's, it's not for your disaster. It's for your well-being to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. So is there hope? There is always hope. Amen? There is always hope. And I think the reason we like this verse and we've turned it into a poster and magnets and t-shirts and everything else is because there are times where our life seems very bleak, where it feels like we're living in ruins. And yet we're reminded that even if we're facing the chastisement of God, it is not his desire to destroy us but to renew us. Jonah was sent to Nineveh because God wanted to save Nineveh, right? That's why he didn't want to go. God sent Jeremiah to Judah because he wanted to save Judah. There's hope. If there was no hope, there would be no need for the prophets. 
the message of Jeremiah is one of coming destruction because of pride and arrogance that began in the garden and continues even today. We all deserve destruction because of our own arrogance and pride and hardness of heart. But the same God who showed compassion on the wicked Ninevites, same God who showed compassion on the obstinate and arrogant Israelites, is the same God who shows mercy and compassion to each one of us today. We don't earn our way into our Father's favor, but in his mercy, he offers his favor and his mercy and his grace and his compassion if we will simply humble ourselves before him. And next week, Lord willing, David's going to share with you the message of hope and of joy and of sunshine and Skittles after I've left you with the doom and gloom. But I think it's important that we realize that what we have in the mercy of God is not what we deserve through the mercy of God. That every one of us is broken. Every one of us has fallen. That the message of Jeremiah is a message to each one of us. And that the God who spoke through Jeremiah still speaks today through his word and through his spirit. And he still calls us to repentance and to turn to him with our whole heart so that he can reveal himself to us and restore that relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of compassion and of mercy, that even though you are sometimes seems like forced to discipline us for our actions, we know that you do them for our good and for the good of your name. So we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the reminder that you extend your mercy to us, not because of anything we've accomplished, but because of your grace and your compassion. Father, we admit our own hardness of heart. So we have areas in our lives that we have made more important than you, that we have idols that we have placed ahead of you. Pray that you would continue to reveal those and remove those from our lives so that we can truly know what it means to serve you with our whole heart. We pray that your kingdom would be established through your people as we humble ourselves before you. We pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. Okay, I got you halfway through Jeremiah in one Sunday. looking forward to watching David do the other half. So um, thank you for being here. You're welcome to go. If you have questions you'd like to ask, I'm willing to try to answer those. And if not, we'll catch up with you. Remember, there's a membership class coming up. Let us know if you're interested in that on the 14th and um, communion next week. And thanks for tuning in, those of you that are online.